You know, where would we be without the Paschal Lamb who died to take away the sins of the world? Isn't he worthy? Isn't he holy? That last chorus we were singing there, worthy, holy is the Lamb. What a wonderful thing, what a wonderful thought tonight. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. Worthy is the only Lamb that was sufficient to take away our sins, to die in our place. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. We could spend all night just praising him for that one fact. Worthy is the Lamb. Oh, and on that day, they will be opening up scrolls. And who is worthy to open the scrolls? Only he is worthy to open the scrolls. That's a wonderful thought to start on. That's not even a message, but praise you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for the lamb that was slain. I tell you, my, skins, my sins are as scarlet, but he washed them white as snow. <laughs> Tonight, I want to look at something, and I was actually a wee bit worried this, this morning when I, Martin started out. My first thought was, oh dear, he's going to steal my message, and... Uh, because he mentioned Moses, <laughs> but I'm not actually not talking about Moses. But I want to start in, in the book of Exodus, if we could turn there, the book of Exodus. Way over to the left, second book of the, the Old Testament. Exodus is actually the Greek name for the, the Hebrew book, um, because Exodus is from the Greek meaning to come out, exit. That's where we get that word from. I just want to talk for a few moments, though, about a remarkable man. This book of Exodus is kind of a consequence of where he led the children of Israel. I want to talk about Joseph. It's a fascinating story. It's one that many young Christians and young believers, young kids in Sunday school grew up with. Fascinating story how this young kid on a farm ends up in Pharaoh's palace. It's an important message as well. All, all the books of the Bible, everything, there's something that's significant in it to speak to us at any different time in our life, time in our society's life as well as our own personal life. We have to look at it and say, how does this reflect to me? How does this affect us? Where does Jesus come into all this? What's the significance? Because there is a significance in it. So there's two lessons to learn here. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey tonight. This is going to be an interesting sermon, the message, because we're going to go through a bit of history and then we're going to go into a little bit of practical application and how does this apply to us and that type of thing. That's what we're looking at. So if I go off the beaten track, it's because I'm changing onto another part. <laughs> so keep me right there. Um, well, let's read Exodus chapter 1. Let's start at verse 8. We'll actually start at verse 7. Exodus 1 verse 7. It says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the, people, uh, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it came to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. He's worried militarily. If, you know, if we take these people off, we don't treat them right, they're going to fall in with our enemies and, and side against us. So he thinks we've got to deal with these people wisely. 
So I don't think this happened overnight. I think this was a gradual thing. Verse 11, it says, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities of Pithion and Ramesses. But but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor or hardship, it says in some translations. And they made them their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherewith they made them serve was with rigor. They beat them hard. It's a remarkable passage. It's not at all what you kind of expect whenever you get to the end of Genesis. You've followed the life of Joseph and you've seen how God has promised this family, this particular family, promised them to be a blessing to the nations. He's promised them to be a fruitful people, to be a blessed people, a prosperous people. And here they are, now the target. They're in the crosshairs. They're going to get picked on. It's inevitable. It's It's not at all what you expect. But see, God works on a bigger plan. God's got things up his sleeves. He's got plans that we know nothing of. It takes us many years sometimes to get that point in our life where we can actually look back and say, that was God doing that. The children of Israel have just arrived at that point. They don't know what's going on. Their house is about to collapse. The barns are about to be burnt and they're about to start wearing rags instead of the riches they might have been wearing before. How did this all come about? Well, we all know the story of Joseph. Joseph was a remarkable man. He was gifted. He was blessed, chosen of God. He was one of 12 brothers. He was, he was uh, impetuous in his youth, eager. He was uh, full of dreams and spiritual. He uh, often opened his mouth without putting his brain into gear, as they say. You know, I picture him sitting out in the ranch, sort of like Luke Skywalker sitting out there, middle of nowhere, tending the, the, the flocks, minding his own business, middle of nowhere. There was no significant city around, no significant population, middle of nowhere. And he starts having these dreams. He dreamed great dreams, godly dreams. You know, I, he probably sat at his father's feet. I could imagine him growing up. They didn't know Bible to read. So I can imagine him sitting at his dad's feet, asking his dad, tell me the stories again. And his dad telling him about the time, oh, I wrestled an angel. Have some fight. Oh, I had a dream about a ladder, and there's angels on it, and they were going up and down. Oh, I heard from God. Can you imagine him telling those stories? You know, it's important, you know, parents in us here, it's important that we're telling our children about things God has done, not only in the Bible, but things in our own lives. To, to reinforce, to reiterate those things that God has done. These are treasures, things that God has significantly done for us. And we should celebrate them in our lives, celebrate them in our families and our friends. Don't be afraid to tell your friend and your neighbor about what God has done for you. You were talking about Claire there and about Noah and how he's miraculously he had an MRI scan the other day and it showed that he needed uh, his bones, or an x-ray I should say, he needed his bones was a problem and they went and had another scan in the operating theatre and there was nothing wrong. And they went, this is amazing. You know, that's something we should celebrate, we should remember. It's things like that when we stir it up that we remember to give thanks unto God. We don't just remember it and go, oh, isn't that a brilliant story? Because then what you're doing is you're taking your eyes off the source of the miracle and the eyes onto the miracle, which has led so, so many people astray. 
So Joseph probably sat at his dad's feet. Oh, tell me that story again. You probably heard it a million times. I'm sure his wives, wives were sitting there rolling their eyes, going, not again. But he told them over and over again. And he opened his mouth and told his dreams. I'm going to skip through his life a wee bit. His brothers didn't like it. But the sheaves of corn bowing down, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So they, uh, they decided they were going to get rid of him. Get him off the scene. I can't stand these dreams. I can't stand these stories. He keeps talking about this God. He talks about these things that God's going to do. What's God going to do that to him? I'm sure he's in the middle of nowhere. He's high-minded. We've got that thing in Northern Ireland, don't we? The tall poppy syndrome. We don't like to see people doing well. <laughs> we don't like to see people achieving more than we achieve. Well, he's, you know, he's don't like, I don't like seeing people from Northern Ireland on TV. It's embarrassing, usually. <laughs> so he's sold into slavery. And uh, he's bought by the chief of police, Potiphar, the, the head of Pharaoh's guard. You know, somewhere along the lines, I'm sure he started to learn a lesson. You know, it says in Proverbs, it says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. wisdom. And to a degree, actually, in a purely secular sense, the fear of man, in the sense of men in authority, is the beginning of wisdom. There's a wee bit of wisdom in that. So I'm sure that he started to pick up the pieces and started putting two, two together. I better be a wee bit wiser. But I'm sure ultimately he, was, he had a fear of God, a respect for God. He looked through his life, his life in Potiphar's house, the way he dealt with his household with diligence and integrity, the way he looked after everything that was given to him, how it prospered. You look at things like that there and you go, hang on, he really was diligent beyond what he should have been. He was a slave. His desire should have been to run away, to get back to his father's house. I'm sure, as we know, his dad loved him, adored him. I'm sure he wanted to get back to his dad. He missed his dad. But instead, the fear of the Lord, he diligently performed his duties, diligently ran away from the hussy that tried to take him to bed and was thrown into prison again. Isn't that the way of it sometimes? You do the right thing and you still get thrown into prison. But it's better to do the right thing for the right reason and be thrown in prison than to be do the wrong thing for the right reason. Because the wrong, wrong thing there would have, could have ended in a whole lot, of, whole lot worse for him. In jail, he, he interpreted dreams. A few more years go past and Pharaoh has a dream. We all know the story. It's nothing new. He told them the dream, the interpretation of it, and even brought about the solution, which is remarkable. Actually, even whenever, I, whenever you read it, I would, actually, I would be troubled to probably come up with a solution. I wouldn't even know how to store the grain that it wouldn't go off. Never mind to actually think about, I'm going to store up these good years of grain to pay off the bat. Now, Sharon might have done that. She's that, that good at thinking those things through. <laughs> And in Genesis 45, we'll just turn over to that real quick. Genesis 45, Joseph finishing up, talking to his brothers this moment. He comes out with a revelation. Genesis 45, verse 4. It says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be ear, 
earring, um, which is ear of corn or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Quite a revelation to his brothers. Listen, don't feel guilty. Don't feel bad about what you did. Yeah, you were wrong, but don't feel bad because God had a bigger plan. Can we say that sometimes? Can we say that when things go bad? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I was in a job and I was made redundant. I can remember speaking to my unsafe friend and he was saying, oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I can remember saying, oh, God will provide. Secretly I was saying, oh, I really hope he does now. <laughs> I hope he brings, he's got to pull something out of the hat now. I've just said, let it on the line. <laughs> And I can look back in that time and go, oh, it was terrible, it was wild, it was, it was an adventure, it was tough. But it was after that that I went on to do my degree. It's after that that I went on to seek God even more. Because it's out of hardship sometimes that we seek him. It's out of those tough times that we actually do turn to him. But he's got a plan that we just have to hold on for. Here, Joseph is saying that I've been sent before you to preserve life. That's God's plan. He wants to save us. He wants to preserve our lives. It says actually, uh, I'm jumping ahead now, but it says later on in Peter, I think it says, about uh, God doesn't, desires that no man should perish, that all should come to save him, saving faith. That's God's desire is to save life. And here is Joseph as a father unto Pharaoh. He actually, it actually says that he, Pharaoh went to all the people and said, listen, don't do whatever you want to do. Listen, whatever he wants you to do, do. That's quite a statement. He went from the prison, you know, from the prison to the uh, palace. Uh, now that's the start of a Pentecostal sermon. <laughs> One day he was on the dole, the next time he was in Downing Street. That's remarkable. Imagine the favor. Imagine the favor of God in his life. There must have been something about him. Something, who, something about this man who was probably just barely cleaned up in order to get into the Pharaoh's palace to interpret the dream. So there was something about him, some blessing and favor that God had given him. It's a favor of the Lord. You can't explain it. You can't put it down to a, a way of walking or a way of dressing. It's, the favor of God is something that's intangible that just res people respond to. So God has a plan, a plan for the ages, a plan for telling people about him, a plan for passing it on. That's what we're doing tonight. We're sharing the plan. We're talking about God's plan for lives, plan for the future. In this age, it is our task to pass on the message. In this age, we are his plan. He plays for the end game. He's not playing for the short haul. He's playing for the end game. Joseph said to preserve life. Yes, Hebrews children, but also the rest of the world. See, we are to be a blessing into the world. Don't understand it sometimes. We don't even like it sometimes. But we're to bless the world. It's through us that God has put his blessing into the world, filtered through us. The children of Israel at this time through Joseph had supplied food that had saved the whole uh, Middle East there. For, for years later, actually up until Roman history, Ro in Rome, they used to talk about Egypt being the breadbasket of Rome, breadbasket of the empire. 
Like I said, it was 2 Peter 3, 9. I've just got to the right part. He deserves that no one should perish. God's desire is to save life. And that's what he was doing here. Planning ahead, planning for down the road. So a new Pharaoh arose back in Exodus there. A new Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. Didn't know any of his back history. Didn't know anything he'd been through. Didn't even know what he had done for the empire. Maybe this is a couple hundred years later. A few generations anyways. They knew none of his backstory. They knew nothing about his wisdom or his insight or his discernment or his integrity. All the things that had made Pharaoh rich. When you read actually into it there, it's fascinating. In, at the end of Genesis, he, he actually stored up the grain for the five years and stored it up. And they're all probably looking at him going like, what are you storing it up for? You numpty. They were looking at him thinking, what are you doing? And then when it, whenever the famine started to bite, then he started to sell them the grain, as you do. And then when they ran out of money the next year, they came to him and he, they says, well, you've got livestock. So they give him the livestock. So all of a sudden he had loads of cattle. Well, Pharaoh had loads of cattle, but he did it for Pharaoh. And then the following year when they came back and they said, what's the use of, 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 of us all starving to death and all this land being desolate? So then what they did was they, um, he said, well, you've got land still. So they give him the land and he fed them. At the end of the famine, he actually gave them, he said, give them back the land and said, work the land, plant the land with the seed, which he still had left over. Plant the land with the seed and then for, for subsequent generations, fifth, a fifth of your harvest will go to Pharaoh. He made this man, made Pharaoh a wealthy, wealthy man. It says there a new, a new king, but in the Egyptian terms, Pharaoh meant head of the household. So it was just the biggest household, the richest household, the most powerful household that he was the head of. But this new Pharaoh came along who didn't know anything about it. He didn't know anything about what Joseph had done, what he had said, what he had implemented. And he didn't appreciate it. There's an element of God's promise through you, uh, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So wonderful to think of that, that God's got a, a physical aspect of his promises as well as a spiritual aspect. And in this here, just in this short story, we see God's, the physical outworking of God's promise to the children of Israel. Through them, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So the new Pharaoh didn't know of Joseph's wisdom, didn't know of his insight, didn't know of his reputation. Or the alternative is he knew and didn't care. Why should I give credit to him? Why should I appreciate that, that foreigner, that Jew of all people? Why should I appreciate them? Of course, he wouldn't have said Jew, he said a Hebrew. Why should I appreciate them? He may have even resented him. He may have been angry at him. He may have been fearful of the Jews, as it said there, and he didn't want to blow up their hero and elevate them. Then they might revolt against us. There's two options there. He either didn't know or else he just didn't want to know. There's a lot of people out there who just don't want to know. He could have been, he could, it could have been the unasked question, the unsought-for knowledge. I'm not going to ask any questions about that Joseph one. I might find out some information I don't want to know. I might find out about his God. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. You know, society and the people we meet every day, there's people like that, isn't there? They don't want to ask about what you were doing on Sunday because they might end up telling them what you heard on Sunday morning. There are people out there who won't ask you about the Bible, they won't ask you about salvation because they don't want to hear the answer. Because they know if they hear the answer, they'll have to respond to the answer. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing, could be the same thing here. We don't know for certain. 
We know that he didn't know Joseph. Of course, he didn't know him. It was, it was a couple of generations later, but he would have heard of him. Is it so different in our day? People who don't want to hear about those men and women of faith who have gone before us. I'm not just talking about Christian, but people who we might elevate as Christians, great preachers or great teachers. I'm talking about people who changed our world because they were Christians. Christianity wasn't just something that tagged on to their lives. It wasn't a, he's a scientist and a Christian. It was, he's a Christian and a scientist, all one, all together. You know, arguably, when you look at the world, you look at the different nations and different continents and different societies, arguably, I think it could, it's good, there's a good case to be said that we have a lot to be thankful for, for the Christian heritage that's been in the West, for the struggles that we have had sometimes with the Bible, with the foundation we have had of, uh, of the Bible in our lives. Those men and women who have done things that have been purely based on their faith in God and their, their understanding of the Bible. Our laws, morality, our sense of equality, all of it's based on the Bible. The institution of marriage, the importance of education, the sanctity of life as the image bearers of God, all based on the Bible. There's a world out there who's living in the benefits of a world based on the Bible. Just as Pharaoh and, and the Egyptian people were living in the benefits of people, benefits of the, sh of the aftermath of people who came along, of Joseph who came along and acted diligently in fear of the Lord, so too our society. It plunders along heedless of why is our world like this? Why is our society so much more educated or so much more... Um, thoughtful when it comes to equality and things like that there, morality. It's all based on the Bible. They don't want to ask the questions. But it was remarkable for me whenever I heard about them recreating Iraq and the government and their laws and reform and all that type of thing. And it said they based it on the Quran. And to me, I was like, whoa, I never even thought of that. But it's a fine thing for that part of the world, I guess. But you'd think that they would have thought the Bible has a better, better look of things, better understanding of things. So society and a culture that don't know God, that don't know the people who have gone before us, they know nothing of the great captains of our faith who formed the skyline under which we live. My dad loves to talk about Mueller. Mueller and Bernardo, men who did a lot of work with children orphanages, they're just names to them. They mean nothing. These are men who knew God, men who feared God, men who had a relationship with God. One of the uh, characters, there was a whole bunch of them, I could have gone on for hours. Like um, One of the great characters who I think is quite, who had a, quite a remarkable life was Henry VIII. You all said Henry VIII and automatically everyone thinks, wives, that's it, poor man. Uh, he's only known for his wives. But the truth was he was actually a really intelligent man. When Luther came out with his 95 thesis, Henry VIII wrote a rebuttal of it. No, he was, so, he, was, he was an ardent Catholic at the time. But he wrote a rebuttal of it. He, re, he argued against it. And it was, quite a, it was so comprehensive that actually the, the Pope says, give him the title, the defender of our faith, the Catholic faith then. Now, you ever wonder why they call the Queen of England the defender of the faith? Now you know. But he went on from there, and he actually went, do they actually have something 
something true? Is there something they're saying that's right? And he went to the Archbishop of Canterbury and he said to him, tell me, are they right? Look at that. And he effectively started the English Reformation, which changed the United Kingdom and arguably the world. Certainly America enjoyed a certain amount of Protestantism, freedom anyway, eventually. But it's a man who, uh, who went before us. We don't think of it. The world doesn't think of it. They don't think of where we are. So our society knows nothing of the Puritans or, like I said, the Reformation, even the bigger, wider Reformation, which brought about so much transformation in our society. I mean, if you look at Europe, in the, if you could look at Europe in the 14, 1500s, there was nothing of any significance. It was after the Reformation that people started to learn, that education started to become more available that equality and relationships and marriage and all that type of thing was so much more uh, understood and embraced. Big institution we have in this day and age is the Salvation Army. Quite a lot of people like it as a wee tradition, sitting out there, certainly the images from movies of men sitting at Christmas, ringing bells, playing their brass instruments and collecting money, feeding homeless people, and that's all we, that's all the world thinks of. But when you look at where it came from, if you look at the Joseph in that ministry, you can argue about where they are now, and I don't want to go there. But when you look at where they came from, where they started, here's a, here's a quote. This is, in answer to your inquiry, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, Politics without God and heaven without hell. The founder of the Salvation Army. It's remarkable. It's an insight, isn't it? These were people who went before us. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about what's going on after, but at that point, these were men who, who, who weren't afraid to, to stand up and be counted. You look at the, the movie that was out there a couple of years ago, Amazing Grace and the Abolition of Slavery in the UK. Quite a lot of people go, oh, it's a brilliant moral movie. Oh, it's the nobility of man and that type of thing. But as all believers know, or most believers know, um, William Wilberforce was a, a, a dynamic and ardent Christian. Christian, He loved the Lord. He had a relationship with God. He actually said, of all things, guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. That's not said by someone who's just merely a go to church every once in a while type of Christian. That's someone who's consumed with it. So now we have a society that's no slavery because of it. Culture and society doesn't know of these men and others and what they did. C.S. Lewis is another one. See, I'm doing a David tonight. David's a great one for quotes. I don't have any poems, but I've got a few quotes. C.S. Lewis, remarkable man. A lot of people talk about him because of his, uh, the Narnia series, the movies. And that's, that's the height of most people out there know but he was a great Christian writer, apologist. He actually wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the rising sun, not because I see it, but by it I can see all else. So society doesn't know of their faith and many others that has shaped our world. It doesn't want to know. He said it's the unspoken question. It's our name as Christians that connects us with other Christians. Yeah, I've actually had people say to me in the past, Jason, would you never think of changing your family name? And um, after sort of nodding a little bit, I said, no, no, I wouldn't change my family name. 
not for all the tea in China. Because my family name connects me to my family, connects me to my father and my mother, connects me to my grandfathers, and on back. So as Christians, our name as Christians connects us to those who went before us. The sad thing is many of us we don't know. There's a lot of people I don't know about. There's a lot of men and women who have walked down the scene of time, who have stood up for their faith, who have cut a swath through this world who we know nothing about. So it's good to read biographies. It's good to, to, to look at these people's lives. Ask yourself those questions. They don't understand, this world doesn't understand how we can waste our time in church. There's a lot of things they don't understand about us. They don't know why we call each other brother and sister. The Egyptian culture was one of paganism. It was one of many gods. It's remarkable how many gods they had. And when you read it, it's our society so much different. So many gods out there. So many things people will give their time to, give their money to, their effort to. They don't know why we as Christians would put on a presentation at Christmas or at Easter. Or why we would go to the Ukraine. Why we would have family fun days. You're doing what? They don't understand it. They don't understand why we do the shoebox appeal or why we do any outreach, youth work or anything at all. Why, why would you help someone out there who, who you don't even know? They don't understand why we would read a book that's thousands of years old. They don't know why we'd read a book over and over and over again. They don't know why we would bring up a book in conversation. They don't know why we would post chapters of the portions of the book on Facebook. They don't know why we would live according to it. They don't know why we would get hope in it, why we would get strength. They don't know why we would get ideas from it. They don't see it as relevant. That's something from a bygone age, something from the 1950s, something from a bygone age. They don't understand. There's a lot about us they don't understand. They don't understand why we pray. They view our prayers as little more than the mumblings of a child with eyes closed who innocently makes a wish before blowing out his candles. To them, it's little more than that. There's no one out there I can't see. Is our society so different from the Egyptian? They don't understand how we don't prize position or power. And you help each other? What? And Tony's going to lend us his car when he goes on holiday? What? <laughs> what, you help the poor and needy? What? Why would you do that? What are you going to gain from it? Why would you invite a stranger for dinner? Why would you help someone out? Why would you give someone a lift? The world doesn't understand why we do these things. Just as they didn't understand why we should acknowledge those who have gone before us. To them, life and living, just as to the Egyptians, it's no different. Maybe the, maybe the names of the gods have changed that they worship, but to life to them is no different. To them it's selfish, it's personal. Personal property, personal status, personal reputation. It's their job, it's their house, it's their income, it's what they have. It's those things that they worship. Let's turn quickly there, go back over to Exodus Exodus chapter 5, we verse, I just want to read two verses here. 
Exodus 5, verse 1. And afterwards Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. There's an old song or something that goes through my head when I hear that. Maybe it was a play or something. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. So Pharaoh just didn't, he just didn't know Joseph and he just didn't know the Lord. In our day and age, is it much different? Society out there, they don't know our God. Maybe, maybe a couple of hundred years ago, they would have heard of him a lot more. Maybe a couple of hundred years ago, they would have known. It's embarrassing sometimes when you watch some of them quiz shows and they have a quiz and who built the ark? Moses. <laughs> who was taken up in a fiery chariot? Eli. <laughs> Just, you know, th- things that I can remember when I was a kid hearing it on TV and going like, ah, knowing the answer and hearing the answer. Now, 20 years later, Yes, only 20 years. Um, they don't know the answers because we're in a new generation. See, even some of the, the older unsaved people out there, they at least were brought up in a family that would, went, took them to Sunday school or sent them to Sunday school probably. So they at least would have got the stories. So when they've come along and they've got to their generation now where they're the parents, they don't send their kids to Sunday school. Ah, sure, play away in the street there. Knock yourself out. Get on your unicycle. But that's, not, that's what this generation doesn't know anything about. So Pharaoh here doesn't know anything about our God, the God of the Hebrews. So this society doesn't know anything about our God. They have their own gods, their gods of wealth, their gods of possessions, their friends or their gods sometimes, their businesses, their reputation, their bodies, my body beautiful, ambition, individuality, their Friday night party or their Saturday morning shopping. That's their gods. And it is remarkable whenever you think of those things as gods, because that's what they are. It's anything that distracts you from God, that takes place of God. It's remarkable when you think about the amount of effort and energy and concentration and resources and time that people give to those things. Not, not saying that all of them are necessarily bad in their own way, but whenever it's done without God, when God is not at the center, when God is not the focus, then it becomes another God. And God hates other gods. Because they're not gods at all. So they serve them diligently with sacrifices of time, money, and effort. Our God is a mystery to Pharaoh. Probably, you know, he probably thought, I'm sure Pharaoh thought, your God can't be that much good. Look at he's left you in slavery. Your God can't be that much good. Look, you've just been made redundant. Your God can't be that much good. Look at your house, it's falling apart and you don't have the money to fix it. Look at you, your, your God can't be that much good. Look what he's done. Look what he hasn't done. It's often what they say. I'm sure Pharaoh had those thoughts. I'm sure he even said them under his breath. But for them, success is getting things and prosperity is always financial. But in God's kingdom, it works a wee bit differently. Yes, he wants to bless us and look after us. He wants to have his life sufficient. But for him, prosperity means so much more. So the world doesn't know our God. They have their own. We've got to go a wee bit further with this. We've got to unpack this a little bit more. Um, otherwise, this message would be like ducks on a unicycle and wouldn't make no sense at all. So Exodus chapter 6, 
if we can turn over just one page. See, we're just walking through this. It's a great way to do this, walk through the Bible, just to go through chapter after chapter, rather than just sometimes, you know, you have to read it to get a context, especially when you're doing something like this, which is a bit more historically based. So Exodus 6, number 2, verse 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, and I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherewith they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you from the stretched out arm, with a stretched out arm, and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people. And I will be, unto, be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give to you for an heritage, I am the Lord. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Quite a promise. <laughs> So I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. So this message, going to have a big long title for it. You would call it Pharaoh who didn't know and God who knows. See, God doesn't want us ignorance or to follow along with blind obedience. If he did, he would have just given us, he wouldn't have given us a mind and the ability to think and rationalize. But God wants us to, to understand these things. To, to delve a wee bit deeper, to look into the word and find out what does he really mean. <coughs> so how did God introduce himself to the Egyptians and to the Hebrews and to the rest of the world? Well, he used the 10 plagues and boys of ears, did he introduce himself? He, he, he came in like a flood. He, he walloped everything that they believed and walloped it some more. He came in and he showed them that systematically that all their gods were not really gods. It's not a God. Don't even go there. Even in their minds and hearts of his people, he had to demolish the fact that these were gods. They had, this, they had lived under this system. They'd lived under it for, for years. And they'd become accustomed to it. They might not have worshipped them, but they had become accustomed to it. I want to take a second. Right, I'm not, I could have got carried away in this. But I want to look at two of the plagues. And I'm not going to look, read the verses, but you'll know the plagues when I look at them, when I mention them. And I look at these plagues, and these were actually, to the Egyptians, they were quite severe. These were quite severe gods. These were quite important people to them. They worshipped them. They had sacrifices to them. They tipped the hat. They acknowledged them and all the rest. But God, our God, decided that he was going to drop on them with both feet. The first thing he did was he, he uh, colored the Nile red, or he it says it actually turned it to blood, but it could have been blood or else it was just turned red. Either way, all the fish died. The Egyptian god of Cumin, which was the guardian of the Nile, didn't do nothing to stop him. Happy was the spirit of the Nile, didn't do nothing to stop him. Osiris, god of the underworld, the Egyptians actually believed that his veins were the Nile. 
and that's what brought them blessing and prosperity. Again, when the God of these slaves shows up and jumps on them with both feet, they don't do nothing. He has to demolish sometimes our gods in order to show that he is the one true and living God. And he does that to our society sometimes. And it's at times like that, when he jumps on our society's gods, that we have to step in and say, well, that's because they're not really gods at all. Those things that you've been following after, they're really not sufficient. The other God I was going to look at there, plague was hail. He says it, it, uh, there was hail on the land. So the, the gods of the, the Egyptians that were silent again was Nut. <laughs> I love that name. Nut, the goddess of the sky. Shu, the god, the god of the wind. Horus, the sky god. If, uh, Isis or Seth, protected crops. Again, God sometimes jumps on those things that we call God or the world calls God to show that they are no God at all. Something we relegate to bygone age and we think, oh, that's, yeah, back in the Old Testament when God had a beard and a cane, that's what he did. But how many people know that God hasn't changed? That God is still God? That God still reigns and rules it because he's no one else, there's no one else stronger. There's no one else more powerful. There is only one God. Every other God is a, is a, it's either a demon or a figment of an imagination. It's unfortunate that people are so caught up in these things. Uh, <clears throat> just like this morning, we're going to do a bit of jumping around. I just want to turn over to the right. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse number one. It says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am jealous. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want you to worship anything else. He doesn't want you to become enraptured or or enthroned anything else in your life. He doesn't want anything else to take preeminence in your mind or your heart. You know, this is a lesson to the world, but this is an important lesson to us. It's important that we remember that God won't have any other gods before him. He won't let us elevate something else above, above him in our lives. He'll sometimes jump on it with both feet. Maybe whenever at a time I was made redundant, maybe I was elevating my job. Maybe, I don't know. He'll jump on it with both feet just so you get your focus back on him. It could be said that again God has demolished the gods of our world. Could we say it in our day and age? Could we, could we look around and say that God has demolished the gods around us? If you think back five years, think about the, the pride of life that everyone was running around in. 
the enthusiasm, the riches that everyone ex experienced, how excited everyone was about, oh, my house is worth so much more than it was before. Oh, look, I've got so much more money in my pocket than I had before. Did we have gods cropping up all around us? God has jumped on some gods of this world. Economic hardships, the Dow Jones plummeting this past week. The recession, job instability, price hikes, share values all gone. I'm not saying God did, but it's, it certainly is there for question, isn't it? I know two men who had spent years and a huge amount of effort saving and saving and buying stocks and shares to have it all wiped off. One man who, who works for me, actually, who's in his 40s, he says he was two years away from retiring and never working again. And something happened and that was it. It's all gone. He had a breakdown and now he works part-time in a shop. The gods of this world are frail gods. They're fickle gods. The gods in this world won't provide the answer for your life. They won't provide the answer for your future. They cannot sustain you. They might sustain you for a while, but the problem is if, you, if they do, you'll have faith in that God. Whatever you're up to in your life, wherever you're going through in your life, remember, remember where the source of all your good things come from. Where every blessing that you live under, that you enjoy, that you appreciate, remember where it came from. See, the Pharaoh didn't appreciate that. He didn't appreciate Joseph and he didn't appreciate Joseph's God. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? It's a reminder that we, we come to a jealous God. He doesn't want us to be disappointed. He doesn't want us to be hurt. He doesn't want anyone else to be the source of, of provision in your life. He doesn't do things because he's capricious. doesn't do things just off the whim because he was in the mood for it. He does things for a reason. He jumps on the, the Egyptian gods. It wasn't, wasn't hugely to, well, it was partly to punish the Egyptians. You, you've done this to my people. Never, never mess with the people of God because the, it was God will come and get you. Jump on you with both feet. And that's what God did. He was punishing the, the Egyptians and he was showing them that their gods were nothing because God's desire wasn't just to save the Jews. Ultimately, his desire was to save the world. So he wanted to destroy their gods and their faith in their gods so that they would go, oh, the gods of the Hebrews, that's the real God. And more important than that, he wanted to destroy the gods of the Egyptians in the eyes of his own people. Psalm 118, uh, 118 verse 8 and 9 says, It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I haven't heard that spoke on in a while, that verse. It's true though, isn't it? Man might help you, but he can't, doesn't have the resources. Princes just won't help you. They don't care. But you can carry that on in the other things in your life. Better to trust in the Lord than have confidence in anything else. We've come to a God whose arm is not short, whose ear is not deaf. We come to the eternal God, a God who doesn't change. Isn't that wonderful tonight? The God who doesn't change. The God whose desire to save life hasn't changed. The God, the God whose desire to preserve life hasn't changed. The God who's still saving souls. The God who still meets the needs of his people. He wants to be the source of life for us. He wants to be the source of hope for us. 
He wants to be our confidence. He wants to be the one that fulfills our dreams. He'll give us the dreams to have and fulfill them. He wants to be our sustainer and our provider. Is that such a hard thing to ask? Is that, it does not make sense why he's jealous. Because he wants to be that to you. I'm sure my dad, he'll tell you stories probably. Um, you know, he would love to have been the one that I run to. Oh, dad, I'm scared. Protect me. I'm, any father would be overjoyed to hear that from their child. I'm in a difficulty. Come to me and help me. Any father would love that. How much more our heavenly father wants to be that, one, that source for us. How much more? If our earthly fathers know how to give good gifts unto their children, how much more does our heavenly father? He wants to be the source of everything in our lives, a provider. He says there, actually, the, part, the part, passage we read out earlier, he says, I'm going to introduce myself to the, to the Hebrew children as Jehovah. Look into the names of Jehovah. We all know it. We've all heard it before, I'm sure. But do this week. Spend a bit of time reading those names. Read them, and how does this apply to me? Our fallen nature seeks answers in other places, but God never changes and still reaches out to us. Let's go back there. I want to go back a wee bit to Exodus again, uh, chapter one. We're doing a wee bit of bouncing around, but I hope it's not distracting. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable truth in this. Exodus one, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Um, the same ones again, eight, verse eight. Uh, now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when they're fallen out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them. I can't say that for some reason. To afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities of Pithion and Ramesses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. There's something about human nature. There's something about the blessing of God sometimes as well, but there's something about human nature that people actually thrive better when it's in hardships. They become more inventive, they're more creative, they become stronger. We don't really learn an awful lot whenever we're sitting in a silken palace getting fed grapes and strawberries. So persecution arose and the people cried out to God. So there's no persecution, no cry. It reminded me of a Bob Marley song, but it wasn't persecution. <laughs> Sometimes God will let that happen. Whenever we take our eyes off him, he'll let hardships come. He'll let troubles come because he knows, you like that one, because he knows that we will turn again to him. It's unfortunate that we need that, but we do. I'll read this first. Don't, don't have to turn to this one. Exodus chapter 2, 23 says, um, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. They didn't actually, I don't necessarily think they, they cried out to God the, uh, of the Hebrews. They cried out to the God of Joseph. 
because they didn't have a relationship with him. They didn't know him. So they were calling out to the God of Joseph and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by reason of that, God heard. It's important that we understand that God responds to our cry. He, doesn't, he didn't respond to their being persecuted. He didn't respond to the, the taskmasters. He didn't respond to their slavery. He responded to their cry. Sometimes whenever your world is falling apart, all you can do is sigh. All you can do is cry. All you can do is groan out to God. I promise you tonight, this God from Exodus that we're reading of, is the same God who's alive and well today. And he still responds to the cry, cry of the humble heart. These people had been humbled, they'd been broken. He is very close and near to them who are oppressed. You know, David actually said in Psalm 119, verse 71, he said, it was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your word or your statutes. It was good that I was afflicted. What? He can't be a Christian. He can't be a Pentecostal anyway. It was good that he was afflicted. Could the children of Israel say that? Not for a couple of generations, I'm sure. Because it's in that moment of hardship, moment of pain and suffering, a moment of torment that's beyond our control that we turn to God, that we turn our eyes back to the jealous God who saved us. The church in the West shrinks. Church numbers are down. Attendance is low. People go when they feel like it. But in the East and in China, where persecution comes every day, where people die for their faith, the church is growing exponentially. It's, it's out of control. Maybe a little persecution would do us good. I remember a friend of mine who actually hoped there would be a United Ireland one day because we need some persecution. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. So when persecuted, we cry out to God. Because even though we turn away from God, we still acknowledge somewhere in our mind or our heart, still acknowledges that God is the only one who can supply the answer to our needs. I want to read a verse from Jeremiah. I'm going to turn to this. Don't worry, I've got it marked, that's why. Jeremiah chapter 9, for anyone who's taking notes. Uh, and verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So don't boast in those things you have. Don't boast in those things you can get. Don't trust in them. But God delights in those who know him. That's the difference between Pharaoh and us tonight. Children of Israel were having a rude awakening. They were about to be introduced, introduced to God through the ten pli plagues. Plagues. I was watching my fair lady recently. Um, they were about to be introduced to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a God who delights in those who know him. He takes delight when people draw near to him. The promise is that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Isn't that a wonderful thought tonight?
I just want to encourage us all tonight. That's my plan. My hope, my goal tonight was to encourage us all to seek God. This is the God who destroys the other things in our lives that might be elevated above him. He's a jealous God. Can't forget that. I mean, he, spent, he took six verses to tell us one commandment. I think he means it. He hates syncretism. He hates when we mix the world with him, with worship of him. He hates it whenever we take our eyes off him and we trust those things that we have, trust the strength of our arm. We trust the friendships we have, the network we have built up. He desires to be the source of everything in our lives. He desires to be the one that we call out to in the night whenever we're all alone. He desires to be the source of all good things for us. And his good things are very good. He is the God who still answers prayer, still answers whenever we call out to him, we sigh. Whenever all we can do is sigh, he still answers. The children of Israel knew the Egyptian gods, so God demolished them. In their eyes, I think we could safely say that the world around us, in the West anyway, there's many gods out there that are being destroyed. I don't think it's a big leap to say that either. There's a lot of things that we've put trust in, put hope in, and where are they today? Already said that page. So they are. God is a good God. He wants to answer your prayers. He wants to be the source. Keep your eyes on him. Seek him with all your heart. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Read into these great men of faith who've gone before us, people who have shaped our society. Appreciate wh- who, where they got their strength from, where they got their faith from, where they had their confidence in. And trust the God who is the source of all things.